These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Talked about the first main theme of the book of uh, Peter so far, the theme of holiness. Second theme of Peter is uh, the life of the Christian community. Now, the life of the Christian community, of course, is going to overlap with the theme of holiness because if we're holy individually, then, of course, we should be holy corporately as well. The discussion starts, in a way, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As one scholar has put it, if you look at the description the call to holiness that comes to Christians, it's easy to see how different it is from the pagan vices that were being discussed at the beginning uh, a little while ago. Remember First Peter chapter 4 said, you used to live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and idolatry. Remember that? Those are the pagan vices. Look at what a Christian is supposed to put off. Rid yourselves, therefore... Chapter 2, verse 1, of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. These are not the gross vices of paganism, but they're community-destroying vices, things that are so often tolerated even in the church. Notice the twin vices of deceit and slander, which are both uh, sins of speech or sins of the mouth, Deceit is practiced to someone's face. Slander is practiced behind their back. But they're both sins of of dishonesty. One judging another when you don't have a right to do so, telling tales about somebody where you don't have a right to do that. The other is the sin of, of pretending all is well, but manipulating. Now, I will tell you that I, I couldn't agree more that I agree with Proverbs, which says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Uh, there, is, there is very little that will destroy the church faster than tricking each other to our faces and telling tales about each other behind our backs. People will get mad at you occasionally for telling the truth to their face. But if you do it privately, privately and lovingly and, and uh, you know, bathed in prayer and out of, a, out of a relationship, most of the time when you tell hard truths to somebody to their face, they will thank you for it. They will thank you for it. I can't remember the last time somebody got angry at me for telling them the truth. I do know when I've been ashamed of not telling the truth because I was afraid of what would happen. And I do know that I've seen a lot of people who become very angry when people wouldn't tell them the truth and they didn't reveal what was truly on their hearts and hid it from them. So the Christian community has to get rid of of dishonest statements uh, with the mouth, uh, statements of malice and deceit, and we're built up as a community through truth-telling. He goes on to describe the Christian community in verses 2, uh, verses 4 to 10, can I, or 4, maybe to 4 to 8. Do you just look down the page and see how many Old Testament quotations there are there? Can you just see that by looking uh, readily enough? 
that we have quotations from Isaiah. If you have little marginal references at the bottom, um, telling quotations Isaiah 40, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 8, Psalm 118, Psalm 34. These are all found in this passage. Now, there's something strange about that. Can you appreciate this? Who is Peter writing to primarily? He's writing primarily to Gentiles. And as he talks about their community, their Christian community, what's he quoting to them? The Old Testament Scriptures. And the way he does it is that he he acts as if they should know this. But they're Christians. They don't have the Old Testament. They're Jews. Sorry, they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. Why is he doing that? Because he's assuming... He's assuming that they had better know. Luke, Paul, John, Mark, all the authors of the New Testament, writing to pagans, writing to Gentiles, quote and allude to the Old Testament over and over again because they want to have, they want the, they want the non-Christian to believe this is your testimony, this is your gospel, this is the truth uh, for your community. People are scattered throughout the world. They've come from an empty way of life. They've committed pagan sins. But the Old Testament truth is theirs. And not only is it theirs, but even line by line, what you notice is that the statements that are made about the Christian community are descriptions. They're not just quotations from the Old Testament. They're descriptions of the family of the faith from the Old Testament. Look at verse... Let me just read with you through verses 4 down through about 8 or 9. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just stop right there. The first reference, you come to him as a living stone. Jesus is called the living stone, rejected by men. Now, the picture is this. Uh, people are trying to build a building. And as they try to build their building, they have a bunch of stones. And they're looking for a capstone or for a cornerstone. And they've got a bunch of stones they can choose from to see which one may be the right one. And they look through the pile, and they're rejecting them one by one. And they come to the stone, Jesus, and they look it over, they scrutinize Jesus, and they said, Nah. He's not the one. They rejected him. The builders rejected the cornerstone. Now, he is the living stone because the stone the builders rejected has become, verse 7 says, the capstone, the cornerstone. And he has become, verse 8, a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But before we get there, he says, listen, you're like him. You're living stones, too. He's the living stone. You are living stones. Being built into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood. Now, where does holy priesthood come from? Do you know? Who is a holy priesthood? Okay, Melchizedek is a holy priest, but who is called in the Bible a holy priesthood? Israel is called a holy priesthood. As a nation, there are, maybe we should take a, take a look. Holy priesthood, uh, offering spiritual sacrifices. Uh, down a little bit later, verse 9, you're a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Turn with me, if you would. 
in your Bibles. As he gets ready to constitute the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, as they're ready to receive the law of the covenant, and seal the covenant with a sacrifice, he says these words, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to say to Israel. So the statements that God made to Israel about her identity are now statements applied not just to the church, but to the Gentile, the pagan church. What he's saying is this. Your identity that you used to have as a pagan is now gone. Your friends think you're strange. Your friends heap abuse upon you. And furthermore, there's even persecution coming your way. So you need a new community. And what new community will that be? Well, it's not just going to be a band of Christians together. That's, that's true. That's a Christian community. But you're not in community by yourself. You are now engrafted, to use the language of Paul, into another community, the community of Israel. Your roots are no longer in paganism and false gods. Your roots are now the roots of Israel. And all that God did for Israel, all that he made Israel, he is now making you. You're his new community, the new household of the faith. The church is a spiritual house. It replaces the physical temple. It's a spiritual house, no longer in one place like the physical temple was. So if you wanted to go meet with God and be part of God's house, you had to go to Jerusalem. It's now a spiritual house. The Christians are now a nation scattered throughout the nations. I'll put it to you another way. There is no Christian nation anymore. The question, is America a Christian nation, is a bad question. The answer to it is no, but I wish you wouldn't even ask. Because the, the, the only nation of God is that new nation constituted under Christ, his house, his body, his dwelling, his family, that's scattered throughout every nation. We're a nation without boundaries. That's what we are. We offer spiritual sacrifices now. What's that spiritual sacrifice? First Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a contrite heart. Isaiah says, may my prayer be like the evening sacrifice. And God even says about the Israelites' false sacrifices, I have more than enough of sacrifices. The temple is now spiritual. We're a temple made without hands. Our lives are an ongoing sacrifice. So we might say the Christian faith is a deeply decentralized faith. It's one scattered throughout the nations. The builders examined this. And they threw it away. They said, we reject it. But God is building it into a new nation. And the stone the builders rejected has become this capstone. And now people are stumbling over that stone. If they reject that stone, they will fall over it. Christians are now the royal priesthood, the chosen nation, the people of God. That's who we are. 
You understand, of course, what this means, don't you? Maybe I should give you one more thing. It's immediately following this description of our, of our new creation as a new nation before God that he says again, chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires. We read that passage. See, one of the reasons why he stresses that we're aliens in this world is because he wants to stress the Christian community. That's where our identity is. It's not in this world. That means, of course, if that's true, then where you came from does not give you your identity. You understand that, don't you? There are places in which the town from which you came is everything. Places in which the high school you attended is very important. There are places in which the college you went to establishes your rank. The places in which the job you have, or the color of your skin, or the language that you speak, or the way you speak the language other people speak, and the way you dress, those are all your identity. But it's not true anymore. That's not where identity comes from. Not from race, not from ethnicity, not from language, not from social barriers. They've been broken down. Our fundamental allegiance is to this new family. We're aliens and strangers in this world. We don't, wherever we were born, wherever we went to college, wherever we went to high school, we don't really belong there. We really belong in this new nation, the nation, the true Israel, the nation of God. Now that's, that's the principle of Christian community that he's describing here. And if I can stick my oar in the question of churches and the application of churches, this, it's this kind of teaching that makes me very uncomfortable to say the least, with homogeneous church growth principles. The idea that, that uh, to really plant a good church, you need to have everybody kind of of the same social strata. And, and I, can I even do something a little bit different? You know, it's, it's easy, and I, I definitely, it's absolutely right, and it's, but it's kind of easy to stress, um, you know, things like where you came from and your skin color or your racial background. Those are true, but, you know, in America, there's every bit as much prejudice based on education and, your, and the amount of money you have. And, and just, you know, race isn't the only one. Race is important, but race isn't the only one. The church builds all kinds of barriers that separates people from people. And we have to have an eye for all of them, not just the ones that are obvious or are, are safe to talk about right now in our culture. What's safe to talk about and obvious changes from decade to decade, of course. Be very we know what's safe to talk about now it might have been very dangerous 30 years ago. It can be very dangerous 30 years in the future. We establish all kinds of barriers. But our true identity is not, again, in race, ethnicity, language, education, amount of money, where, where, you know, where we live. It's in Christ. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be in this new community and alienated from another one. Third theme, third main theme of 1 Peter is the persecution theme. It began early on in the book, but it doesn't come up too often in the first couple of chapters. We noticed already in chapter 1, verse 6, you may have to suffer a little while in various trials. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it suggests that you may, if you're a slave, get beaten up just for being a Christian. Chapter 2, verses 18, 19, and 20. Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, 
not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. It's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Maybe meaning, you know, because he's a Christian. He'll talk about that a little bit later, the danger of suffering because you're a Christian. Chapter 4, verse 14 makes that explicit. He says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. So this idea of suffering comes up once in a while. But in chapters 1, 2, and 3, most of the time, the assumption is that you can live a fairly normal life in this world as a Christian. The apex of that idea of just, you know, kind of live well and things should go all right is found in chapter 3, verse 8. Would you follow uh, that place? Maybe especially chapter 3, verse 10. He says there, quoting Psalm 34, which is one of the wisdom psalms, wisdom psalms, Tell us sort of how to live a good life, what the contours of good life are. He says, for whoever would love life and see good days. All right, there's the idea. Love life, you want to have a good life, you want to have good days. All right, how do you do it? Must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. There it is. First thing you want to do if you want to have a good life is don't mouth off, don't lie, don't insult people. Control your tongue, for goodness sakes. That's where most of our problems come from, right? If you want to have a good life, first thing you do is control your tongue. Verse 11. He must turn from evil and do good. If you do good, people will be good to you. He must seek peace and pursue it. Don't get any fights. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so, if you want a good life, just take care of that and realize that God will be on your side. Control your speech. Uh, do good. Don't get into fights. Pursue peace. And things will be basically all right. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, people did that. Things should go pretty well. He goes on to say in verse 13, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, do you know what the expected answer to that question is? Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? What's he expecting? The answer is no one. No one will trouble you if you are a good person. But now the switch begins. Because in these few verses... Although he held out the hope, he now doesn't say no one in verse 14. He says something quite different. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, I've got to give you a little lesson in Greek grammar here, if I may. The Greek language has four moods, they're called. If you've had Latin or some other languages or maybe studied English grammar, you will know the four moods. Here they are. The indicative is the mood of reality, like it's finally stopped raining. The sun finally shone a couple of days. That's indicative. That's real because we have had some sunshine after a lot of rain lately. So that's, that's indicative. An imperative is uh, the mode, of course, of commanding. Uh, we don't usually command the weather, but we might say, it's raining. Take your umbrella. The mood of the imperative is, I want you to make something real. The real thing is that you should carry your umbrella, and I'm telling you to make it real. The third mood is the mood of the subjunctive, which is things that, that I'll put it this way, may very well happen. Things that are very plausible. Things like, if it rains, if it should rain tomorrow, I'm sure that I'll get wet because I've lost my umbrella. Well, if there's a 50-50% chance of rain, you'd be using the subjunctive. 
because it may very well rain. There's rain in the forecast for tomorrow. So if it rains, I'm going to get wet because I don't have an umbrella, and I don't have any friends who will share their umbrella with me and so forth. But it's not certain because you're not sure it's going to rain tomorrow. Okay? Now there's one more, and that's the mood we don't use in English very much at all. It's called the optative. The optative is the mood of remote possibilities. And this would be, you know, kind of in the Sahara Desert. And you'd say, oh, that it would rain and the desert would bloom. Well, the desert is not going to bloom, uh, at least not in the foreseeable future. We're in the Sahara here. The driest or the Gobi Desert or, you know, Death Valley, driest places on earth. Oh, that it would rain. Yeah, it's a remote possibility. Maybe it'll rain, you know, a couple times this year or something like that. The mood that's used here in this verse is the optative. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you should, even if it's barely remotely possible, he says, that you will suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. So he first introduces suffering as a remote possibility, but he's going to move on from there. Next, he says in verse 14, Continuing, don't fear what they fear, do not be frightened. I'm going to give you another Greek lesson. In Greek, there are two ways to give a command. Two ways to give a negative command. And it's not apparent in English, and you just have to trust me on this. But there are two ways of giving a command. One way means, by a grammatical device, stop what you're already doing. They have a way of conveying that. A real easy way. It's called a present imperative. And they have another way of conveying, don't even start. I know you're not doing it, and don't start. Okay? That's done with what's called an error subjunctive, a negative error subjunctive. This one, don't fear what they fear, is the one that says, don't even start. As if to say, I know you're not afraid right now, and I don't want you to start to become afraid. Again, the idea is, that this fear of persecution and mistreatment is a little ways off. But he's being gentle with them because it's not all that far off. He's kind of easing them into the subject because next, in the next verse, in verse 15, he's now in the indicative, the mood of reality. Suddenly, what was far off and we shouldn't even start is getting closer. He says, "...in your heart set apart Christ as Lord." We already read this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason or an accounting of the faith that you have in you. Do it with respect, keeping a clear conscience, and so on, so they'll be ashamed of your slander. That's all indicative, as if this is around the corner. And the advice that it gives certainly makes a great deal of sense to those who are getting close to fears. Do you notice what he does here? I want to give, maybe I'll have a little exercise with this. He says... Don't fear what they, what they fear. Don't be frightened, verse 14. Would you do this with me? What are the most common fears of secular people, pagan people? Can I ask you to make a list with me? Okay, probably number one, they're afraid of death. What else are they afraid of? Okay, death, rejection, keep it coming. Okay, failure, sickness. What was that? Unemployment, okay, let's just say, uh, you know, uh, no money. Can I broaden it out? Uh, okay, loneliness is a good one, a couple people said. Fear of heights. 
I'm going to put that one over here. I'll put it along with, uh, let's see, snakes and spiders. And uh, what else in this category? Um, home videos when you can't get away. And slideshows of somebody's trip to Borneo. Okay, what are some others? Yes. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. Giving speeches. All right, let's, what are some other? Maybe that goes over there, too. Um, what are some other fears along these lines? Okay, the unknown, being exposed, some bad thing you did, becoming public, okay. Okay, boy, we're getting a lot now. Okay, insignificance, uh, the unknown, uh, the, the truth coming out about you. Okay, uh, there are others. What's the one we're talking about here or related to this? Being robbed, being beaten up, going to jail, being killed, things of that nature. Okay, Here's what Peter says. Make your list. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fear their fear. You know what their fears are. Don't have those fears. Now, of course, he's speaking in absolute language. In a sense, you know, fear of, of loneliness can drive us to do things so we won't be lonely, make friends and so on. And so there's a sense in which it can be good. But that's not his main point. What he means is don't be terrified by the things that ordinarily terrify people, like persecution, pain, suffering, and death. What he says is sanctify Christ in your hearts. It seems like a non sequitur, verse 15. Set apart, the word literally is sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord. Do you understand what he's saying here? Don't be afraid of the things other people are afraid of. The thing you should really be afraid of would be displeasing Christ. That's what you should fear. You should fear displeasing God. Set him apart as the one you should fear, in the sense of reverence, and hold in high esteem, and do anything to not disappoint. Set him apart as the one. Sanctify Christ. It is better, verse 17, we're actually now back to the optative potentiality. It is better, should it possibly be God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And again, the idea is you don't want to fear what they fear to the point of fearing, fearing that instead of fearing God. Chapter 3, verse 18 continues by giving us a model for how to conduct ourselves in the face of this suffering. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached the spirits in prison. I'm not going to go through that passage. Again, it doesn't say it. You've got to think through it. What's he doing here? Why does he bring up Christ all of a sudden, Christ's death? You see why? Don't fear what they fear. Sanctify Christ. Why does he bring up Jesus' willingness to die? This is an example to us because we should be willing to die. Jesus, can I put it this way? This isn't really biblical language. Was more afraid of not fulfilling his commission than he was afraid of dying on the cross. It was far more important for him to fulfill his mission than it was for him to avoid pain. And that should be your model. He was put to death in the body. 
in order to win his victory. Chapter 2, verse 18 uh, and following really says the same thing when it talks about those who are beaten, slaves who are beaten. He says, uh, after that little discussion I gave you a, a little bit ago, chapter 2, verses 18, 19, and 20, when he talks about suffering for doing good, he says, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you. And here's where he mixes things. Christ suffered for you. That's the atonement of Christ. But then the example of Christ right away, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, we can't follow in his steps with regard to paying for sins. But we can follow in his steps with regard to fearlessly doing God's will. Verse 19, how did he do it? He committed no sin. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that we should do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When he was on the cross, they, they hurled insults. They said, if you're the Son of God, come down. He saved others. He can't save himself. But he didn't answer back. He didn't answer fire for fire. He didn't jump, you know, jump off the cross and, and you know, blow their tongues out of their mouth or something like that. Which he could have done. He could have, you know, he could have strangled them all like, you know, like Darth Vader on Star Trek. Just kind of, you know, just kind of get them and they'd fall over. He could have done it. But he didn't. He was silent. Sorry, and everybody's got to talk about Star Trek for a while. Star Wars. That's why everybody's talking. It's Star Wars. See, I hadn't planned that illustration. And that's what happens when you don't plan an illustration. Everybody knows Darth Vader's on Star Wars, not Star Trek. No wonder everybody's talking. It's terrible. Where were we? Somebody get us back on track here. Where were we, Jen? I don't know. Okay, here we go. He could have, but instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He was willing to suffer in, in silence and suffer even to the point of death when they hurled their insults at him. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by, your, by his wounds, you were healed. His willingness to go to the end was vital to your salvation. And the implication, of course, is by way of response and gratitude, we should be willing to be loyal to him, even if it means we have to walk his path. He makes, it, he makes the point again in chapter 4, verse 1, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. That's an odd statement. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. It really comes up a couple of times here. Um, in 2.24, this idea of being done with sin comes up maybe the first time. He bore his sins in his body on the tree. And then there's an odd way of putting it here, having become utterly dead or unresponsive to sin. When it says he died to sin, it's an unusual word meaning unresponsive. Not dead physically, but unresponsive. It's like it, it didn't have any hold on him anymore. It didn't have, not that it did before, but it had no hold whatsoever on him. He was vindicated. And the, and the point is also made that for us, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, for us also, the strange statement, and I can't find it, chapter 4, as a result, he's not lived the rest of his life for evil desires, but for the will of God, for you have spent enough time in your pagan desires. No, I can't find it. 4-1. There it is. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What does that mean? It means, I believe, 
that if you're willing to suffer for Christ, if you're willing to pay that kind of a price, then you've made a radical break with sin. If you're willing to suffer for righteousness, if you're willing to be shamed or beaten or thrown in jail, then that will be a liberating thing. If you knuckle under the pressure or buckle under the pressure, you haven't made your commitment clear, but once you've suffered, it has a certain galvanizing effect on the Christian, and you'll make a break with sin. That's what he says should be our aspiration to be like Christ, put to death with regard to the flesh, but made alive, chapter 3, verse 18, with regard to the Spirit. If I can, I'll give you just one little interlude. I skipped over it. I don't know if you noticed it, but from chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, I skipped over that cryptic Noah passage. And I'm, I'm sure some of you are hoping that I'll say something about the Noah passage. And you know what? I will. I'm not going to say much because I will tell you that, you know, whole books have been written about this. And, and you really don't need, you know, a 10-hour lecture on this. But I'm just going to offer a couple remarks about this, this idea that, that somehow Jesus' activity bears a relationship to Noah. It ended, chapter 3.18 ended, He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who are they? I believe the spirits in prison are, are fallen angels or demons. The reason why I believe that is because it is very, there's a close parallel to Jude chapter 6 and 2 Peter 2.4. Maybe I will take a moment and uh, look at that just to show you how I do my reasoning on something like this. What is a spirit in prison? We don't know, but we look around. If you don't know what something is, you look around and see if it's described somewhere else in the Bible. And, and lo and behold, it's described in 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for the judgment... Etc. So there it is. The evil spirits are held in dungeons or in prisons. And Jude chapter 6, um, next book before Revelation, Jude chapter 6 also gives us something similar, uh, talking about um, evildoers, broadly speaking, in context. Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their homes, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. The great day is a term that means the judgment day. It's used another handful of times in the Bible. So I take these spirits in prison to be false spirits, to be demons. Okay, They're not people. When Jesus went, it's not people who died a long time ago, which is one of the other views of the matter. But when, uh, when Jesus died, he preached to the spirits in prison. Now, you may say, okay, it's demons. Now, tell, would you please tell me some more? Why would Jesus go preach to demons? The second thing I want to tell you is that there are different words for preach. There's one word for preach in the New Testament. It means preach like evangelize. Preach evangelistically, to share the gospel. That's the main word. Um, you've all, maybe, you know, evangelize comes from, the, from that word. Uangalizamize, the word. There's another word that's pronounced keruso. And that word means to make a proclamation. It would include royal proclamations. 
the king has had a son. It would include the proclamation of peace after a, a, you know, a battle has been won or a war has ended. And that's the word that's used here. Jesus does not evangelize the demons in prison. He makes a proclamation to them. Now, what would he be proclaiming to them? What he would proclaim to them is, I won and you lost. I quoted uh, Martin Luther maybe a week or two ago in his critiques of James that we didn't like so much. But let me, let me quote Luther positively. Luther was once asked, what did Jesus do you know, in the days between his death and his resurrection? Luther's answer was, he thumbed his nose at the devil. I think there may be a little bit of truth to that. He went down to the demons, and you understand that the demons uh, shouldn't be given too much credit. You know, don't, don't get your theology from Frank Peretti, okay? If you like it for entertainment, go ahead and read it. That's fine. You know, I know some people who get a cut of his royalties. They're nice people. And so buy Peretti books, and you'll make some friends of mine uh, a little bit better off financially. Go right ahead. But don't get your theology there. Demons aren't all that smart. At the beginning of Jesus' career, you know, they're trying to keep Jesus from dying. The temptations of Satan in the, in the wilderness are all temptations to glory without the cross. They don't want Jesus to die. At the beginning. At the end, they do want him to die. They think, we've got to kill him. So Satan enters Judas, and he's betrayed, and he's killed. They don't know. Uh, one, one day they're saying to Jesus, uh, we know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. Don't throw us into the abyss. Like, like saying, you know, we give up, Uncle, be nice to us. Next time, a couple chapters later, uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and they try to kill a boy who's demon-possessed. They don't know what they're doing. They're just flailing around, trying to, you know, see what works. They're not all that, they're not all that, all that insightful, right? So Jesus says, hey, guess what, folks? You blew it. You thought you were getting somewhere with Judas, but you weren't. And that's what he did. He told the demons, he told Satan, that their doom was sealed. And the reference to Noah that comes up here, I think, has two purposes. He preached the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when Noah patiently, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Uh, the reference to Noah is a reference to um, the idea that demons were very active from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, during the period after the fall of Adam and Eve and before the flood. But there's something else, I believe, going on with Noah, and that is that Noah was one in a family of eight. Just a few saved. Just a few. And if the Christian community feels small, and often it was, and that all are against them, and that they're strangers and exiles and aliens, then surely Noah did. But God saved Noah. God preserved Noah. God delivered him from the corruption of his generation, was true to the covenant because Noah clung to the promises and performed a very difficult obedience, the obedience of making that ark a hard thing. So there is hope to be given. We might even say that this water, he goes on to say, symbolizes baptism. Not removal of dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ. In a way, Noah was saved through a near-death experience. Everybody else was being killed, right? And Noah escaped with difficulty. So it may be for you. 
I think that's what's happening with a Noah reference. But again, back to the idea that suffering can have a salutary effect. You break decisively with sin, even when people ridicule you and all the rest. Chapter 4 continues in verses 7 to 12 with some positive teaching. The positive teaching is a description of the life, again, in the Christian community. And the key thing here, as he says to them in verse 7, the end of all things is near, be sure you are self-controlled, that you love one another, verse 8, that you offer hospitality to each other, verse 9. And then just a word or two on gifts. Each of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised. Gifts are essential to the life of the Christian community. And he makes a, a very basic theology of, of gifts known. First of all, gifts come from God. Second, they're administrations of God's grace for His glory. They're not for our glory. We're not to draw attention to ourselves. They're for God's sake. Uh, they're for the service of others, not for our pride or our rank. And while they may begin with heightened natural abilities, they're spiritual through and through. It makes a basic, you see the basic distinction he draws between different kinds of gifts here? Two categories. Gifts of speaking, gifts of doing or serving. And that's the basic categories of this day. Now, people get all into, you know, gift lists and, you know, the 22 gifts and ranking this and that. But in a way, it's simpler than that. We either talk or we do. Not many people are great at both, you know. Uh, maybe a couple others. You're either private or you're public. And I guess maybe also could be divided this way. More supernatural, more obviously supernatural, and less obviously, where you use a lot of discipline. Like prophecy versus teaching. Prophets kind of get, you know. You don't work at your prophetic oracle. It's given to you. Teachers work. So, more supernatural, less obviously supernatural. Public, private. But the most basic is talking and doing. Using them both for the building up, for the edification of the church. One more time that he tells them, got to be ready for suffering. Verse 12. Don't be surprised. And now... It's a, now it's, it's present. A present imperative. Remember I told you there's two ways to give a negative command in Greek. One is don't start. The other is don't continue. This is don't continue. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials. I know you've been surprised, he's saying. Stop it. Don't be surprised. You should expect these sorts of things. Peter predicts it. Jesus predicts it. Peter moves from the possibility to the certainty that suffering will come our way. If someone reviles you, he says in verse 14, by the name of Christ, it's a blessing to you. Don't suffer for evil doing. Suffer for the cause of Christ. And then some final comforts in chapter 5. He says, listen, Satan does roam around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. You resist. 
Resist with the aid of your brothers. And when you do, God will establish you, will strengthen you, and restore you, because to him belong the dominion, the power, the glory. And thus the book of Peter ends his discourse on suffering. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.